Welcome to That's No Longer My Ministry, a podcast that tells a different story about healing. A story of healing as discipline, as real, hard, and uncomfortable work. This is a place where we honor the journeys of marginalized folk actively purging years of programming and the consequence of never being centered. A place for acknowledging and moving through trauma. A place where radical self-liberation is sought and no is a complete sentence. You should listen if you're someone who wants to build the kind of life you don't need to escape from. I'm your host, Nadia, a black woman who has spent way too much time trying to fit into a number of spaces that weren't and still aren't meant for me. But that's no longer my ministry. My mind is pretty comfortable these days in a good place. I use good, like a touch of good, (laughs) but better is really what I should say. Better place. My body is, I'm struggling a little bit, you know, with um, body image issues. Um, I gained some weight while in the hospital uh, earlier this year. And um, it's kind of caught up to me in a way that now I'm like running around thinking I'm in my body but then I see myself and I'm like that's not me and I've created like this really distorted image of what I actually look like and it's just unfortunate because my mind's finally in a good place but then my body hasn't caught up to that yet so waiting to get everything working together amen that's the goal it's that body mind (laughs) alignment that I strive for every day in practice has been very hard for me. So, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> so I definitely can relate to you. I also have come to this uh, recording, both eager to hear your story and eager to really connect with you because it's the first time we're actually ever having a conversation <laughs> and also feeling really drained from a long day, really, yeah, just like, bleh, like just feeling like what I would like to do is wear sweats and have like a big tub of ice cream and watch <laughs> the scene finale of Bachelorettes because I'm in a very trashy TV mood. But instead, I am going to try to keep to like cooking dinner after this, eating something that'll fuel me and feel better and not trying to treat my body like crap, even when my mind is not quite there. So yeah. we keep going. But this is a great time for you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, my name is Sabrina Singh. I am living with bipolar disorder. And for the past couple years now, I've been using my journey with bipolar disorder to have conversations about mental health, mental illness, suicide, and how this affects everyone, either in a big way or in a small way. And it's been really important to me to advocate for mental health and mental illness, mainly because I didn't have that when I was diagnosed. I didn't know anything and I felt very lost and very alone and no one should feel that way. Yeah. And I actually want to touch on something you just said, how it affects everyone in a big or small way. What do you mean by that for people who are listening and are like, I don't deal with that. It doesn't affect me. (laughs) You know, what people forget is that mental health affects everyone. Mental illness 
there are, you know, certain people suffering with different illnesses from depression, uh, generalized anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. I mean, the list goes on. But everyone has mental health that we should be nurturing and taking care of in the same way that we treat our bodies, Um, the way that we've created a healthy lifestyle so that we can look a certain way and our body can function a certain way. Our mind needs that. And I think we didn't talk about this for many, many years, but there are so many ways that everyone can be taking care of their mental health so they can live um, a more productive life, really, and a healthier life. Um, And I think years ago, we we didn't talk about this. And now it's so important that to recognize big ways is those suffering with mental illness, that their mental health is maybe affecting them in a negative way. And small ways are maybe you know someone, your loved one or your partner, your daughter, your son is struggling and you want to know how can I aid them? How can I help them? Or what role of support can I be? Yeah, I love that you mentioned that. I think a lot of people don't think about the relationships you might have to people who have mental illnesses, whether they're friends or partners, like they're very tricky relationships to navigate. So I love how you mentioned Mm -hmm. like finding your role, finding the way that you can support, participate, and just nurture others who are struggling, but then nurture your own mental health to make sure that you don't go down a path of struggling as well. So one thing that I thought was really interesting about your intro is you started saying your mind is better, good right now, better. What did you mean in the context of bipolar disorder? So I've been living with bipolar disorder since I was 16 years old. Um, That's when I was diagnosed. That was way back in 2006 in a totally different community and societal climate than what we have today where people are, you know, uh, woke, (laughs) if you want to use that word. So when I think of the person I was then and how I was struggling then and how I've grown as a person in the last 16 years, I see a lot of ups and downs. This year especially has been really hard for me. I battle suicidal ideations um, for a long time. And again, you have good moments and then there are not so good episodes or phases. Um, but the last couple months of 2021 like really gave me a run for it. And um, I was fighting to survive. It was beyond terrible. And so this year, I decided to admit myself for inpatient psychiatric care, knowing that I was going to try something new Mm -hmm. after having been on medication for 16 years. And uh, I was discharged in March. I was there for 64 days. So I put in my time. (laughs) And I came out with a new outlook and perspective, as well as kind of shift in my brain. Um, so for the first time in a long time, I am not actively suicidal. And that is better for me. That's huge. Um, and every I day that. I see that that strengthening uh, every day from treatment or program or just self-care. I'm nurturing that feeling. It's been a crazy ride, but I'm starting to see that it might be worth it. Wow. That's really helpful for me to hear as someone who also struggles with suicide ideation and just 
consistent suicidal thoughts, um, especially when I'm lower in my depression, which has been the last stretch of a month or so. And so just to hear you say that you felt a shift in the way you're thinking reminds me that these periods pass and I, and I do Mm -hmm. feel shifts. And in those moments, I can enjoy those moments. And it's sometimes hard. Like last night I was like, what if I just feel like this forever? And it just, that one thought sent me spiraling, uh, for the rest of the evening. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I get it a hundred percent. I do want to clarify that when I've said a shift, it hasn't been any kind of magic. <laughs> um, right. While inpatient, I was undergoing, uh, I still am undergoing ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy, um, also known as shock treatment. And um, yeah, it changes your brain, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so science is amazing. Modern medicine is way beyond my wildest dreams. And I do not try to understand any of it um (laughs) I I just accept that I know nothing and these are there are experts that work day in and day out to help people struggling specifically with bipolar disorder and that when I just think of that that blows my mind and I've just been so fortunate and so lucky to work with amazing providers and be at a really really great hospital yeah I actually you know I never thought it was possible it's funny that you say that um that you wondered could it be like this forever I was like 14 13 14 when I first thought about killing myself Mm. and over the years I I just felt like I'm gonna be like this forever there's nothing that can help me and I would have moments and phases of relief when medication worked mm-hmm. and then last year when I was told that I was medication resistant treatment resistant is what they say and we had to try something new I almost had given up mm. and I'm happy that I didn't and that I listened to them that it could get better there were so many times I wanted to stop because I wanted to die and yeah. they kept saying like you're gonna hold out for that moment and now that that moment is here, it like, I'm like overjoyed in such a way that I've cried tears of joy, which is yeah. something I didn't even think was possible. Um, wow. So I'm really grateful for this moment and to yeah. be able to share that. Yeah. I'm grateful that you're also able to share that. That's huge. Oh, no. I feel like this is really taking us into the first segment. Um, so you've been told, but. I really wanted to talk to you because of your experience, because of this 16 year work that you've put in so far. And specifically in this segment, I want to kind of do some myth busting around suicide and, Mm -hmm. you know, coming from a space or spaces where I've been in community with a lot of people who struggle with depression, anxiety, and I have a lot of close people who are diagnosed with, you know, borderline personality disorder. So the range of things. And I feel like in those specific spaces, I can have honest conversations about suicide, but outside of those Mm -hmm. spaces, like you said earlier, these conversations are stigmatized. Sure. But also Mm -hmm. I know people who are afraid to talk about openly in general spaces because of what they might think about what somebody is going to do in the immediate moment. And so it's this idea of like our understanding of suicide is a moment in time or our understanding of suicide was a phase 
that no longer is this like that person may have attempted they they are survived but they're not necessarily going to do deal with suicide again and so i wanted to chat with you because of how you've written about this lifelong work to keep yourself yeah. alive i feel like i've always been fighting to survive and that kind of irritated me like why do i have to fight so hard and there are other people that just live there are other people that live wake up and they just go about their day that was a wild concept for me and i woke up so many days wondering like why didn't i die last night why did i have to wake up like i wish i was dead this is not fair like i'm hurting so much and the fact that people just their alarm clock goes off and they wake up on time I I'm, I was baffled. Like, I didn't understand what I was doing wrong. And I think now when I think back to being 14 and struggling with these thoughts that I didn't have a word for, like, I, I don't think I knew to say I'm suicidal or I'm thinking right. about suicide, mainly because it was 2004. And I don't think that was a word that ever existed <laughs> in our like high school vocabulary other than you know you take a health class right and they talk about it like one day <laughs> right um like, this is mental health some people want to die don't do that <laughs> right <laughs> you know we don't it advise never, it that's it it was yeah it was never thorough and I was so confused I had kind of convinced myself that these thoughts were hormonal and I was going through puberty and this is what puberty was like. I remember just talking to one of my friends once, like after months of thinking that I didn't want to live. And I was writing all these letters to God. I did these dear God letters for the longest time. Dear God, please end my life. Like, please take me. I want to die. Why? I was sad. And I just felt like maybe other people do that. So I wanted to confirm with her. And she looked at me and was like, no. In her no, it was like a slight sentiment of judgment. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, me neither. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, just asking. Not me, not me. Just asking for a friend. Yeah. But I remember the point where it was, it had become too much. Like the walls were closing in on me and it would always be in the kitchen. Like I'd go in the kitchen. Simple thing is like opening the utensil drawer. And I would see just like the forks there. We had these uh, big serving forks, uh, you know, when you make pasta and stuff for the noodle. Yeah. And I just kept thinking about how I could stab myself hmm. with this fork, like this huge fork. And the yeah. knives, like always on a whole other thing. But I just figured the knives would be more messy. And then after a while of having these conversations, almost daily now, you know, in yeah. the kitchen, discreetly to myself, of course. Because I was being the perfect Indian daughter, obviously. So well, yeah, there's that layer too. <laughs> yeah. So like, I think I need to go to therapy. I don't think I knew what therapy entailed or what it was, but I knew it was something people did. Like I had kind of seen it on TV. Like, yeah. I I didn't understand, but I just figured someone has to help me, and yeah, and then I just went to my parents, wow. and I I I asked. I figured like I had to try and I think at that time I just wanted so badly to be quote quote regular 
Yeah. And what I've learned over the years is there is no regular. You know, the regular doesn't even exist. It's like the societal expectation that we've created. That's like the Loch Ness monster. It's it's not real. That we're (laughs) all trying to, we're all trying to perform regular, but nobody is in fact. No, 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 no. And yeah, I did therapy for a while and um, it wasn't enough. I knew it wasn't enough. And the thoughts were still there, very much consuming me. But I kind of tried to pretend. I thought if I pretended really hard and created this persona, uh, this kind of facade, that it would go away. Like they say, fake it till you make it. And I was getting really good at faking it. But that is not true. You almost convince yourself kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, other people are believing this. But other people are believing it, that you're, you know, you're regular and you're perfect. And you're just like all the other teenage girls. But then it was me alone with me going Mm. to bed at night thinking, hmm, I wonder if I have to wake up tomorrow. In a way, not that like you want to sleep in the way that I never want to wake up again. And I always had this like pain that weighed my heart down. Mm. And I didn't know how to get that weight off. And I think that's when I started realizing, like, this could this could be a lot more than me. Because I saw there were people that actually had a will to live. Like, they woke up excited and they couldn't wait for this to happen. And I just, I didn't have that until my sweet 16. I, I, did, I did definitely hype it up. And mm-hmm. it was everything to me. And I mean, still, to this day, I'll say it's one of the best days of my life. It was everything I dreamt for and imagined. But I did not anticipate what came after. Were you in therapy throughout this whole period of time? I was in therapy, yeah. I was in therapy from 14 to 16. I mean, I'd like to say super consistently, but probably not as consistently that I needed. Do I think that would have changed anything? Probably not. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there was a point that even my therapist was like, "I'm, I'm not sure this is enough. Mm, And that's when the conversation started coming up about seeing a psychiatrist. And then after my sweet 16, I just had a huge breakdown. And it was obvious that something was more wrong for me than just battling with uh, suicide, like those ideations, or maybe dealing with depression. It definitely appeared that something, it was greater than that. Yeah, because I was wondering, yeah. I mean, you kind of cleared it up. I was wondering, you know, you kept saying you were faking it. But when you got into your sessions with your therapist, would you be more honest then? Or would you oh, still yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. gloss? Okay. So I tried to be honest, but <laughs> this is the little Indian girl in me. I'm not going to lie. I was so nervous that the therapist was going to like tell on me. Like if oh. I had a thought or if something was happening that my parents wouldn't approve of, I, I think I didn't understand the confidentiality and what that actually meant as a child, but yeah. I was so nervous. I mean, I remember they had these noisemakers in the offices so that people waiting in the waiting room can't hear you. Oh. And I just never trusted that. Like I'd always be whispering. <laughs> She's like, no one can hear. She always used to say, no one can hear. And I was like... Oh, you don't know brown hair. You're like, you have no <laughs> idea what they're capable of. <laughs> right. Um, and then like, on the other, on the flip side of that, um, I, I mean, I was amazed that you went to your parents, first of all, at such a young age and was like, 
I need to go to therapy. But what was their reaction? Oh my God. I said, I'm having bad thoughts. I want to go to therapy. And they said, we don't do therapy. Anything you can tell a stranger, you can tell us. We don't air our dirty laundry out. What ended up happening is my amazing, I mean, guidance counselor. I mean, absolutely amazing woman. I um, honestly, so much of this journey and seeking help is indebted to her. And it just goes to show that people that work in the school, the staff at any level, they are taught to look for red flags, essentially. And I'm not even sure what conversation we had, but it was probably one of our first because it's just freshman year. And the antenna went up and she sent me to the school psychologist. And my parents did not want me to see a school psychologist, you know, wanted to handle this on the outside. So I got into therapy. I'm really so grateful for her. And it's really because I thought something was wrong with me. And then I almost felt even crazier for thinking like, is there something wrong with me? Or is there not like I was confusing myself? Yeah. So that validation from her, like, this could be a concern, but you are not alone. Um, A lot of teens struggle with this. I mean, those four years of high school, she supported me, she advocated for me. And the biggest thing is she always listened. And then my parents really took time to listen and learn. Yeah. Uh, we were kind of all in this together. I mean, we didn't know anything about mental health. No one knew anything about mental health or mental illness. And at that time, still at 14, there, there, we weren't talking about an illness yet. It just seems like a small problem. Yeah. Something to work on, something that has come up yeah. and we're just going to navigate it. And then it's just going to go away. Yes. It was going to be gone. After your um, sweet 16, you had a breakdown. Yeah. So I had started hearing voices. That's when I felt like, no other people are not like this and I I was depressed after my party because it was over and I was just thinking like what do I have to look forward to now so I'd entered a really depressive state and the voices were consuming me and I basically just lost it at school the nurse called my mom my mom took me straight to the pediatrician of course my heart rate was like really what it can get really high people don't even realize like these panic attacks and anxiety attacks are as much physical as they are mental mm-hmm. um and this the pediatrician she said physically she is fine but she needs to see a psychiatrist and i was so disappointed because i was doing there i was doing therapy and i kind of thought like like everyone else fine. would go away like what what did and then also, I didn't know what a psychiatrist really did. I knew they were doctors. Um, but you always hear negative things. There's so that would be so a scary, scary thing to navigate as a, like as a young person is hearing that you have to go see a psychiatrist and you and the context of your family are not super familiar with this world. So now you're like navigating the completely unfamiliar territory and you're wondering if something's wrong. Yeah, I was very confused. They said, go to therapy. I went to therapy. Like, I didn't understand all these things were happening. And like, I'm saying voices, but I don't, like that, that even didn't make sense then. I mean, I was 16 years old. Yeah. I'm a junior in high school. Like, you don't know. We had never been taught. This was, I mean, other than knowing that they were doctors, I didn't know anything. Yeah. So I went and I had a very thorough evaluation and I got diagnosed with bipolar one with psychotic features because of the hallucinations that day my life changed October 26 2006 totally changed how were you supposed to go about managing this 
we definitely had to continue therapy. And then we talked a lot about medication. And I think my parents were almost a little hesitant to, you know, medicate a child. But we tried medicine, you know, small things, mood stabilizer, SSRI, they try little things Mm -hmm. in the beginning to see what works. And that's when my medication journey began. And I kind of thought, I didn't understand fully what that meant at the time about like trials and tribulations of medication and finding the right cocktail, so to speak, for you. Yeah, that that didn't register. I kind of also, not even kind of, I didn't know what it meant to be bipolar, mm, had yeah. bipolar. I, I didn't know like, okay, how long? Like I, I well, like, when am I going to be cured? All these, all these things. Cause she just threw out this term and it was a different time. People didn't like have iPhones and Google things in right. the office. You know, you got to wait home to go home and get your dial up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and then like scroll and print computer. out your pages. Yeah. Askjeeves.com. What is my oh <laughs> disorder? Yeah. So it was, it was a really different time. I want to echo because of this, this segment. So you've been told it's like, okay, so you did the therapy because that's what you were told to do. And that was supposed to work. Okay. And now you're on medication brand new mm-hmm. and that's supposed to work. That's supposed to be the cure all. And so like, we're, we're moving through the steps and still along the way, it's like, this no, is not yeah. it. And she talked about like the episodes, like what mania meant, what depression meant, how they got to this conclusion. And, and those kind of things, like, I understood, but then in the realm of me, I was like, I'm not, I, I'm not sure. And the biggest mm. thing that I was struggling with is I thought suicidal ideations meant depression, that you were sad. Yeah. And then I, t- we spoke and I was having manic episodes and feeling, you know, episodes of mania, like intense mania. And I still wanted to hurt myself. So mm. it's like, this could never leave me. It's like both sides of it going up and down, up and down. And I guess what this is what people don't realize is that not everyone who's struggling with ideations isn't depressed. Right. Right. And, um, you know, there's something in bipolar disorder called mixed state when you feel both. That is beyond terrible, right? (laughs) Yeah. For me, it's always been the worst. I hated those episodes. Your heart would feel sad and your mind, you'll be like sad and like down but then your my body always felt so manic like the racing thoughts the not sleeping the and I think that's because people think depression is sad manic is happy but it's not that's not mania at least for me maybe there are some people but for me I know everyone's experience is different mania is definitely not happiness yeah and I think that's important just to know in general like manic does not equal happy no Um, no 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 but it is like the high end instead of the low end of yeah. The illness. Yeah. As far as like energy goes, right? Yes. You have so much energy in your body, and you're just like, for lack of a better reference, it's like you're on speed. You're just, you want to do everything. And yeah. a lot of this like very grandiose thinking of like, I'm a superhero, or, and then adding hallucinations to that, like a whole other story, honestly. Like yeah. hearing voices while you're manic and being that paranoid. Like, I, I would always feel like I was in, like, the zoo. The actual animals. Like, I would be talking about them. And it's, like, all these things are just in my mind or I'm hearing them or they're not happening. It's a lot of wheels turning at once. Yeah. And I think over the years, um, that confusion 
intensified really i mean i there were always always good good times good phases where medication worked and therapy worked but then there were the times that oh it stopped working and then we have to try something new yeah you, you never realize like this is literally a lifelong battle transitioning from the last segment i'm going to ask you what is no longer your ministry that I'm not going to allow my mental illness and that very severe symptom that takes over me, I am not going to let it control my life. Like, I have to be more than that. How long did it take you to get here? 18 years. 18 years. That's amazing. When I when I realized, and this is the first time, I mean, I've had other moments where um, medication worked really great and I wasn't wasn't suicidal but I don't think I was in this frame like Mm -hmm. I've been working this program so hard this year when I say this year has been dedicated to treatment and wellness and self-care that's literally all I've done all year which is amazing because putting yourself and your health first and foremost is what we should all be doing and I feel like in light of us being in a pandemic still like Mm-hmm. I love that you're an amazing example of someone who's like, I'm dedicated to making sure that I'm okay. And I'm going to invest in it in all these different ways right now. Yeah. But the reality is I was pushed into a rock and a hard place. September of 2021, I started detoxing for a me- from a medication that I had tried uh, for nine months that was helping a lot with the ideation, but I was suffering a lot from other side effects that weren't worth it. Um, and it ultimately it comes to making these terrible choices, not making bad choices, but having to make the most difficult decisions for, you know, your body and yeah. your brain. And I had to make that choice. And I really tried, we tried so many all alternatives because it was, I wasn't feeling suicidal, which was great. But the anxiety had taken over. Now I had driving anxiety. Now I had social anxiety. I never, you know, I've struggled with some anxiety, but never to this degree. I had developed mm-hmm. a really, really bad tremor. I didn't even know that these kind of medications could cause these kind of things. So the initial reaction for most psychiatrists is to give you something to counteract that. Mm-hmm. And we did. And I tried and it did not work. And my sister got married June 2021. And I mean, uh, she had one of those COVID weddings. So it was supposed to be 2020 and then it was 2021. So we had been looking forward to this for a long time. I mean, I was her maid of honor and um, I was just so excited for her to to be part of it. And I was really struggling during it, Mm -hmm. mainly because of the tremor and then just feeling nervous with like music and just other and normal Sabrina, like on any day. I can't wait for a wedding. Like I love, <laughs> a, you know, a good Listen. You know, big fat Indian wedding, five days. I love that stuff. It was difficult and I hated that it was difficult and no one could notice probably, but I knew that I was like working really hard and you don't, there are parts of life that should just be effortless. You don't want to always be working like times a hundred. Just yeah. to get at someone's like bare minimum. It's it's not fair. I know we're not supposed to compare, but it's it's really unfair. So I made a decision. I said, I need off this. And it took some time. And they had said, they said, most likely the ideation will come back. 
And by September, I was off of it. I didn't feel it, but I guess there's like that half-life business. I, you know, I'm not a pharmacist. I don't know, but (laughs) it's kind of still in your body or something. So by like first, second week of October, Mm -hmm. they were back. I wanted to kill myself. I was working part-time and our office was across the train tracks, the train Mm. station. And I would just sit and look out the window, sit at my desk and look out the window and think like, how long does it take for someone to die when they jump? Like they jump in the tracks. Wow. And and I couldn't do anything without thinking about it. Like life just becomes so overbearing. Like what, what am I doing this for? Yeah. And I never felt like I had this relief. Like, okay, I'm going to do this for now. They'll figure out something with medication. I'm going to feel a little better and then I'm going to come back to this. Like, it's always going to be a part of me. And I think that's what was killing me because, you know, here I was, 31 years old, and still battling the same thoughts and the same feelings as 14. I had grown in so many ways, right? You know, I graduated Mm -hmm. high school and college and graduate school, and none of those things mattered because in this moment, life meant, it means nothing. Yeah. And it's real that will to live. People take that for granted, and you shouldn't. You really shouldn't. Like that is such a beautiful thing that you can wake up in the morning and be grateful for that first breath. And I didn't have that, and I wanted that. Since like 2018, they had been recommending ECT. I was nervous mainly because of you know the way it's portrayed in the media. I feel like the only accounts I ever learned about shock therapy were like really old. Yeah. ones like because I took all those psych classes and you're talking about like <laughs> early days and, and so I remember yeah. being like shock therapy we still do that mm-hmm. so share with us for us uneducated <laughs> folk I just kept thinking of one flew over the cuckoo's nest which I'm also referring back to like AP psychology yeah um <laughs> and you know it's the way I was like people are doing this and they're shock your brain and it's terrible and then you're you know they tell you your memory you're gonna lose some of it and So I just wanted to do every, I wanted to exhaust every single option. And he made a list of 10 things I should try before committing to it. I love a list. Like (laughs) I'm not even going to get it wrong. I have that list. I type in my phone and number one, I'm like checking them off as we go. Like it's like I'm going grocery shopping, (laughs) but I'm, you know, trying different psychiatric meds and really, really doing the most. I joined group therapy. I, Mm -hmm. I was going above and beyond. Like, I'm a great psychiatric student. <laughs> um, I have done it all. And then it just, yeah. it just was not enough. And by the end of October, I said, I need to have an evaluation and I need to see my options. I'm told that I have a severe bipolar disorder. Like, okay. there, it, it's a severe case, apparently. It's strong. That's what I'm always told. Your illness is strong. strong. So I had to work to be stronger right? You can't let it control you. My illness does not define me. My illness can't be running the show or my life. I am in control. And the reality is most of the time I'm not, I'm not in control. I'm not in control because my brain has run off with all these terrible thoughts of not being good enough, not being worthy, not really, really horrible things that are on like repeat in my head and I'm literally hearing them from voices and then finally we talked about ECT he answered every single question because I had a zillion of them 
And I was like, you know what? I think I have to do this because the reality was if I didn't decide to do ECT, I would have been dead. The ideations had become too much. When I say consuming, I mean in every moment and every thought, I was not functioning. Yeah. So if I wanted any chance, and I've attempted suicide before, when you're battling thoughts like this in your mind, when your mind is your greatest adversary, you don't know what you're capable of. Because yeah. at any minute, if I turn on you, like I've been suicidal, and I say like, oh, I, I'll never do it. I remember saying that when I was in like high school, early college. No, I'll never do it. It's just a thought. And then one day, that thought takes over and yeah. takes control. And then next thing you know, you know, you're opening the top drawer of your nightstand, emptying every pill you have. Because you just don't know what to do anymore. I was getting all this help. I was doing all this therapy. I had done so many programs. But it's like, I didn't know what to do. Like, what could help me? So if these doctors are saying this could help me, I had to take a leap of faith and believe in them as the experts, right? I yeah. believed in them all these other years prior. I took all the medication they wanted. I did all the things. So if I didn't take their advice in this way, it's like, what's even the point? Every doctor that I like asked, like, oh, what's your opinion? You know, even family members that were doctors, they said, you know, he's right. Mm. You, you're going to die if you don't. Wow. You are going, you're going to keep trying. Was it hard to hear that? I feel like the, the way you just said it, like, they're right. Like, you are going to die if you don't. That's like, feels blunt. Yeah. And I kept thinking, like, I disappointed myself. Like, mm. This gets me emotional to even think about. Like, I've been doing this a long time. This has yeah. literally been almost, actually, more than half of my life, and I felt like I failed. And I felt having to do ECT. I think I had it in my mind that I was doing this as like, a, like a punishment or like. Paying some type of consequence for not doing something right. Like, I had failed myself. Like, how did I let it come to this? And but it's hard. Obviously, it wasn't you. Yeah, no. I mean, I know, I think I knew deep down, like, logically, yeah. I knew it wasn't me. But emotionally, in terms of cases like this, when, when you're battling yourself, it's like, what could I have done better? What could I have done differently? What decision would have changed? Like, even now, sometimes I think, like, what if I did this earlier? How could have my life been different? I'm going to say this. My therapist says, never start a sentence with what if. Anything that starts with what if ends with anxiety. It is I agree. <laughs> it happens to me all the time. Every time I'm like, well, yeah. what if? I'm like, stop it, Nadia. <laughs> yeah. We're not We're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, what if? Shoulda, woulda, coulda. You can't go back in time. We can't cry over spill milk, so we're just cleaning it up. And I yeah. feel like most of my life, I've just been cleaning random stuff off the floor that I keep spilling. And I've always been clumsy, so it mm. almost feels like, of course I spilled this. But it was like the first time that I bet on me and I had almost no expectation. I, I wanted to believe it was going to be like magic, but I also thought that I was going to go to the hospital. I was going to admit myself, which I had done 10 times already. 
but mm-hmm. I guess I thought like as soon as I got there, magically <laughs> the ideations would go away. <laughs> and no, they they do not. There is definitely a reason you do not have shoelaces and shower gaps and yeah. strings of any kind, right? I spent a lot of time though inpatient and suicidal. And mm. this is while in treatment. And I think that was probably the most frustrating time ever because I mean, you're you're undergoing something intense mentally and physically and uh, battling that then was probably the hardest time in my life because I was seeing other people around me getting better mm. and not, you know, this is where we learn comparison is a disease. Yeah, I know. Some How could getting... you not start to compare <laughs> when you're know? like, we're all working together at this? I understand like I have bipolar one, this person has this, no two experiences are the same. And you tell yourself, you know, that consciously, but still there's a part of you that's like, well, if they take this medicine and they get better, why don't I? So when I saw like, you know, these are now my peers getting treatment and you could see them improving. And, yeah. you know, they give you an estimate of how many treatments you'll need. I that made me more and more upset. Like, what is wrong with me? And I remember the psychiatrist and he just, I was laying on the stretcher in the ECT Mm -hmm. suite. You know, they're trying to find an IV for the anesthesia. And Mm -hmm. I was just crying and crying hysterically. And he Mm -hmm. said, you need to accept this, accept what's happening, accept this moment, and you need to accept this treatment. And once you can accept something in your life as real and not be spiteful really things will always be better because you will see it differently and your perspective will change I was like what what is this guy (laughs) no fix my brain like shock it whatever no I don't care just make it raise the voltage whatever you have to do and then I started really thinking about that this perspective and this like feeling I had on myself that I like this was my punishment and this was not my punishment this was my savior Mm. and I can see that now yeah Um, and it's just crazy because while I was there they kept saying I was like I'm not getting better and they're like don't worry we see it before you feel it there'll be Mm. certain things in the way your face looks and your eyes and you'll be brighter and it will come be patient they would say like you look better today and I'd be like, no, I'm the same. I'm going to die. Mm. Right? I want to die. And then just time after time, that want became less and less. And I was like, whoa. And I'm saying this knowing that this will not be forever. Mm-hmm. And I I mean, I still even, to keep it 100, I mean, last, last week, I was struggling with passive thoughts. Yeah. Like, it would be better if, or this. Not that I want to and I'm planning, like, uh, you know, writing those things in my journal where I'm making lists and writing letters. And I think that's okay to say, like, it's a slippery slope between passive and active. Yeah. Um, and I think that suicidality has been such a huge part of my life for so many years that it is, is a part of me. It's not who I am. Right. But it is a part of me. And I think doesn't mean like I always go there. Like 
no, you know, you go to the grocery store, they don't have the cookies you want. It's not like I'm going to kill myself. It's like there's certain times when you're so sad, you just wonder. Once you've wondered that for so many years, that that wonder, that little thought, it's like a switch on mm. and off. It's not every day the way it used to be. It doesn't consume me. It's not running my life, but it's always there. And recognizing that it's always there is kind of showing a little respect that at any time you can go right back to point A, like right back to those super active thoughts where, you know, once I, and I, I say this for people to know if, if you're wondering um, when the ideation is really, really becoming a big problem, if you are planning, if you are making lists, if you are giving away items and planning a will and writing letters to people around you, that is a sign. Right. That, that is your brain telling you something. Yeah. And do not take that lightly. I love, love that you said. It's a red flag. Like, take it as a red flag. Investigate that further. I want to move us into the next segment. And you talked about ECT as one of the ways that you work. This is the segment, It's the Work for Me. And so mm. knowing that this year so far, it, you've dedicated it in multiple ways to working and feeling better and just making sure that you're not letting this control you because it's no longer your ministry. So I'm curious, yeah. like what, what makes up these pieces of like the work this year so far? So medication, ECT, the, you know, actual psychiatric treatment, 100% is a layer. I know medicine is not for everybody, but I do suggest that if you're really struggling with thoughts like this, you consult a doctor because you just don't know. Don't be so opposed to psych treatment. They will work with you and they definitely listen to your wants. No one is forcing pills down your throat. Yeah. Yeah. And medication helps. As somebody who also takes medication and whose meds aren't currently working and now I'm like exploring some new ones, like I was really resistant at first, but when it does help me, I'm like, I'm just so happy that that part of it has been taken away. Like that weight has been taken off and I can focus on these other things. So if you're like hesitant about medication, I always tell people like, look into it, ask all your questions, talk to your doctors about your specific needs. Like if you're like, well, I'm afraid this is going to happen as a side effect, tell them because there are different meds, different side effects, and they can work with you. So just medication is, is really a, is a lifesaver. Yes. hundred percent. It's a game changer. When I was discharged right after I went into a partial hospitalization program that I was resistant, I also mm-hmm. didn't want to do that. But so that means, you know, it's five days a week therapy, Monday through Friday, four hours a day. And it's really that, uh, step down to get you adjusted acclimated back to being home especially for Mm. people who have extended stays however just to know for people to know partial hospitalizations like that can also be a way of avoiding an inpatient stay if you see yourself going down this path and you know you need more than once a week therapy this is a great idea great great tool people really i guess don't know about and then i was in i was in that for some time And then I went a step down, which was into an IOP, intensive outpatient program, which is also really open to anyone struggling that needs a little more. So that was three times a week, three and a half hours each day. And then I went down to two days just to like, you know, get back on the swing of things. So now I've been home for a little while and I'm still in treatment, really, really working the program 
I've been in this specific type of therapy since I was like 19. It's called dialectic behavioral therapy. And it's really essentially teaching you to cope with skills. It's very popular for people with borderline personality disorder. And there are specific modules that you are taught that you put into practice in your life in ways that it can help you. And that has been a game changer for me. So I'm constantly working the program. Like I have tons of different journals. I use a gratitude journal in the morning. I love the five minute journal that, you know, you write in the morning and you write in the evening. It's a good way to start your day and end your day. Prayer for me is huge. I know that's not for everybody, but for me, that is my guiding light always. And then I have all these keeping a regular journal and venting. I used to call Mm -hmm. it my dear God journal. Love, 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 because, you know, people aren't always there. And I find writing therapeutic. I love coloring. That's really like a mindful activity for me. And then I've been exploring and using a lot of different journals, like um, calm journals and uh, journals that give you prompts and activities. To be completely honest, I've been like exploring Five Below. They have a lot of really great books under $5, which is great, $5 or less which is crazy because we know mental health care and products or nothing is accessible financially really for the masses. So, I mean, these books have been amazing for me. I found specific ones that I like and between, I mean, that and therapy, I do attend a support group that I actually facilitate. And um, I love that having a community and peers that are, you're never going to have the same exact diagnosis or the same exact experience, but there are always themes like these recurring themes that weave everybody in the mental health community together. So absolutely love this. And I recommend the journals for everybody, whether you have a mental illness or not, I think these are good tools to keep your mind in check and to make sure you are loving yourself the way you need to love yourself and giving yourself that self care. And again, it's from the smallest act to the biggest acts. Like you wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you look in the mirror. What do you say to yourself? Mm. Yeah. Self-talk is big. Yeah. 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 I'm always working on self-talk. That is where other people catch me. My therapist will catch me. Like I am so mean to myself and I sometimes don't like, I'll go through worse phases where my friends will be like, what you just said out loud about yourself is so mean. And like, for me, I'm like, well, that's just kind of like my everyday talk. So like, yeah. that's, that's what I have to work on for sure. That's a constant battle for me. Yeah. I mean, that's been huge for me as of late. When you've been as down and like, so down the rabbit hole as I've been, like, every time you're climbing up, and then you say, I am not enough. No one loves me. I am not worthy. It will never get better. You're just you're losing grip you're losing grip and you finally have to just be able to grab on and climb up through motivating yourself and encouraging yourself. You have to be your biggest cheerleader, right? And they, yeah. you know, we hear all the time, um, if you don't love yourself, no one will. And I always thought that was corny because I've seen firsthand at times that I really had no love for myself. People were showing me that I was worth that love and how I should love me. So I'm not sure that's 100% true, but I do think learning to love yourself is the greatest gift you can ever give yourself. Like not to, you know, bring out the Whitney Houston, but- Always to bring out the Whitney Houston. (laughs) (laughs) Learning to love yourself is learning to be okay with you. And if you can be okay with yourself alone, that's huge. And I never liked 
being alone or being in the quiet because the voices would come out and say all these terrible things about myself and I'm kind of shutting them down lately like no you're not running the show anymore if you believe in affirmations it's so meaningful it's so empowering what you hear and what you say to yourself that builds up your worth and I'm not saying that if you're suicidal you hate yourself because I know at the times I loved myself most I still wanted to die so I'm not saying that they're they're correlated in that way. I'm just saying when you treat yourself with love, when you know what you need and how to fulfill those needs, your mind shifts. Yeah. And it brings us back to that perspective because you're being so positive that you're you're knocking down like any little someone creeping up mm-hmm. on, you know, on the negativity uh trail. And I mean, it's not, we cannot, we, it's not, I don't want this message to be that, oh, if I say positive things about myself, I won't struggle. I'm just saying, if you say positive things, you're ready for a battle. Mm. If you don't have that self-love and positivity, you can't fight for anything. Yeah. Essentially with, when it comes to ideations is you are fighting for you. You're fighting for your life. Yeah, that's in every that's way. What it is. Yeah, and the medicine, the medicine and treatments and anything medical will only bring you so far. To really get over that hump, you need to see yourself where. So many powerful words that I really hope people <laughs> are gonna like rewind and just like re-listen to that part. That was out of this world. And we're yeah. <laughs> coming up on the last couple minutes, and so I just wanted to close with our last segment and. It can, it, we have like two minutes, so we can keep it brief, but just like, what do you do when you're not, when you're just like, I'm unapologetically going to be myself right now. I'm not going to worry about any work that I have to do. What are, what are things that you do to get to that place? The expectations or supposed to, or I should do, I'm putting that on the back burner because I come, a, come from a culture where there are certain expectations of course I mean I think most people can even agree to that without even um having been raised in the Indian community but for me that I'm not thinking like I'm supposed to do this so I should do I want to what do I want to do what nurtures my soul what do I need right now and it's not going to be what someone tells you you're supposed to do. It's not going to be what you should do, right? Like good Indian mm-hmm. daughters, we should do this. But if that's not feeding my soul, if that's not what I need to survive, mm-hmm. I know my body best. And always reminding yourself that. Like mm-hmm. you are your own boss. And I think when I stopped thinking about like expectations and should and supposed like if you don't want to go to a family event, don't go. There's a reason you don't want to go. Yeah. Now, if you're isolating, that's not good. Let's not isolate. But if you're just saying, like, I need a me day. The other day, Friday, I took a me day. And I just drove out um, to the outlets. And I just walked, just walked around by myself. And it was just such a vibe. Because yeah. I spent the day with me. And that's and what she I- needed. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done that before, but I just knew it was a nice day and I needed to get out and I just, I wanted to explore something. And I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not hiking or anything. I'm not exploring <laughs> nature. I'm exploring, you know, Cape Bates, but 
I think when you do that in doses, just like do what you want. Once you're not hurting yourself or hurting someone else, you listen to you. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for being a guest, being so open, being so vulnerable and just sharing such hard things very candidly, because I think it's so important for all of us to hear and understand all of this a lot better. And I certainly learned so much from you. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, This was great. And I hope everyone finds what they're looking for on their mental health journey, especially this month. This podcast is a labor of love. And too often, labor by Black women happens without compensation. If anything in this episode resonated, and if you're taking anything along with you today, please consider donating to our Patreon or sending funds via Venmo. All information is available on that's no longer my ministry.com. Also, wherever you're listening to this episode, please consider subscribing and tuning into next week's community release. Bye, fam.